0: no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Pax Britannica, the Scottish Revolution interview series. The Kirk, the Covenanters, and the Revolution, with Dr. Chris Langley. Welcome to the Pax Britannica Scottish Revolution interview series. In this episode, I'm thrilled to speak with Dr. Chris Langley, reader in early modern history at Newman University, Birmingham. Dr. Langley has published multiple books and articles over the last few years, but of particular interest to this series is his work co-editing The National Covenant in Scotland, 1638-1689, of which he also contributed a chapter. Listeners of Pax Britannica can purchase this collection at a 40% discount by going to Boydell & Brewer's website and entering the code BB870. This applies to both the physical and digital copies. Dr. Langley is also a co-director of the Mapping the Scottish Revolution project. More details for all of these resources can be found in the show notes, as well as on the website, paxbritannica.info. Dr. Chris Langley, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you, Sam. It's nice to be here. So you've recently edited a collection on the National Covenant, which brought the work of several quite brilliant historians together. And from what I've seen, it's been incredibly well received. So could you explain your thinking behind that book? What was your aim when you were putting it together? And how does it fit within the historiography?
2: Okay, this is the classic book pitch, isn't it? The the first conversations about that book came in a conference in Belfast in two thousand. 15 where it was becoming apparent that a lot of the assumptions about the national covenant about the middle of the 17th century not just in scotland but in britain and ireland more generally were i wouldn't say out of date i think that was that would be cruel but i would say that maybe some of the interpretations were changing and really my purpose for trying to bring those those people together in that book was to emphasize how good the quality of scholarship was in terms of the material that these people were using there was a lot of archival material that that scholars outside of Scotland probably wouldn't have understood let alone been aware of and also it was it felt like a time where every, every time I went to a conference about 17th century or early modern religious thought or political thought there always seemed to be a, a, a big Scottish contingent there but it also meant that it looked like the time was right to contribute something to a much broader conversation. And so initially what I wanted to do was create a sequel to the Celtic perspectives of the British civil wars, really, which was I think published sometime in the 1980s. And so I just thought that the scholarship on Scotland and Ireland in particular moved so, so much since then that I I wanted to provide some sort of corrective for that and actually even just as a as a postscript even since that conference and that thought entered my head in a pub of course the scholarship has moved on even since then so really that that volume is a snapshot in time from from around 2015-16 and even if we produced it, if we produced it today, I think it would it would offer different insights. So yeah, it's just an um, an effort to distil this this new range of scholarship and and to showcase some of the really cool things that were happening, especially in university graduate schools at the time, that that weren't getting the the airing that I thought they should. I mean, in terms of the the, the historiography of this and where this fits in, this this idea of trying to move people's ideas of the national covenant, away from some of the kind of um, outdoor preaching, stereotypes, things like that, these, these firebrands, of which there were many, by the way. You don't want to go to lunch with any of these people. But <laughs> what we do want to emphasize is that covenanting is a much more complex thing than just signing on the dotted line or putting your hand up in church one Sunday and maybe getting a bit teary about it in the middle of Edinburgh, it it was more a case of as the political landscape changed around the people that subscribed and swore to that document that their responses to, to that act changed as well, so what you have is a landscape that was incredibly fluid and that fluidity then continued after the restoration in 1660 where because of the the, the, the kind of shifting landscape around them it forced changes and contortions in how people responded so basically even though the national covenant as you might see from the cover of the book there's a little extract from the solemn and covenant on the cover even though it's text gives us this sense that things are solid and that it is a static has a static meaning and thereby should have one interpretation what actually is going on there is that that text gets kind of contorted to the different historical and political realities going on at the time and in fact even the even some of the real firebrands struggle with this stuff you know so in pulpits you get ministers who were was one of my particular interests You have ministers who are really struggling to gauge kind of what the hell has happened politically (laughs) and what that means for how they understand the covenant or the covenants, I should say. So the book is about trying to underscore the the variation in those responses and that for scholars outside of Scotland in particular, to get the message home that the covenant wasn't a one-dimensional document and it isn't a one-dimensional document to this day.
0: It's interesting that you highlight how the the almost woolly, vague nature of the Covenant, which I'm imagining was something of an advantage when you were getting signatures and you were getting initial support, but when it actually came to applying it, you're saying it became much more fractious because everyone had come to believe their own personal interpretation of the Covenant, which didn't necessarily mesh with everyone else's. Yes. I would say that
2: the, the the definition of that of the document was woolly, but the individuals the individuals involved in, in framing it had some quite specific ideas about yeah. what they thought it was. So that, that kind of wooliness, I I would sort of prefer the word variation, I suppose, because there's a, there are an awful lot of values being fed into that document in 1638. And, and the work of Ian McInnes, um, Alan McInnes, rather, has really contributed to that conversation that we know there's a huge group of people behind the, behind the creation of that document. But when it gets to the application of it, when it gets to the understanding of it personally, that's, That's when the tyre hits the road, if you like, because it's one thing signing up to something um, when you can sign up to it and have these quite kind of broad notions about anti-Catholicism and things that the Scottish public, as as Laura Stewart has suggested, broadly agreed upon, hence the enthusiastic response. But when it comes to testing those ideas, even in things like day-to-day exchanges with what you think your minister is saying in his pulpit or... You know, when an army comes into town and, you know, they're meant to be an opposing army, but maybe, you know, you're related to them in some way. So, you know, forcing these on-the-spot decisions about what your allegiance to that document meant. And to me, the the really important thing here is that the actions that people were taking in responding to these kind of day-by-day challenges, they didn't see them as contradictory to the subscription that they would made. So they could there's been so much anthropological work on this in a wider context but people can hold these contradictory views and not see them as contradictory (laughs) so and and that's really one of the things about the the volume was that to try to not scoff at that at that variation and to understand that the complexity in in how people were understanding that, that document the casuistry involved in it the the, the moral torture for some people who were taking this very seriously This is you know clearly not a joke you know this is an oath that they were swearing in church sometimes at the same time as a communion celebration you know the layers of meaning just constantly adding up and the the contortions people were forced into were, were really quite difficult decisions for them so again the book emphasizes that really personal aspect of covenanting
0: as well as its
2: collective nature.
0: So on packs, we've already covered the Scottish crisis and the bishops wars and we've seen the formation of the tables and the committee of estates. I was wondering if you would be able to expand on the role of the Kirk and of ministers in these, in these developments, in these events. Were Kirk ministers involved at every level? Was support from the Kirk not monolithic was there division within the Kirk even at this early stage yeah that
2: taps into some of my interests from over the years really so yeah the, the the Kirk's involvement is in in this is well stated but again the there are a mixture of responses and I sometimes have problems with how to phrase this and I feel like every version of this I've developed is a is a bit of a cop-out because I, I do think that there are divisions within that church now, clearly there's the there's, a, there's the really obvious one of people of those ministers who just didn't agree with Covenanting full start that's clearly a, a, a problem and this is this is the group that, that Andrew Lind would, would refer to as as Royalists but really that even within the group of ministers who see Covenanting as a as a wholly good act and consistent with with their position as ministers and good Protestants again there's like a variation in, in thought there so for example the real pivotal moment is, is is the Glasgow Assembly at the end of sixteen thirty eight, where again it forces ministers to it flushes certain ministers out, and this becomes a bit of a trend in the sixteen forties in Scotland into the fifties, where the church would make a political decision that that took them one way or the other. They they have these kind of crossroads, and the crossroads at, at the Glasgow Assembly in sixteen thirty eight is about about bishops. Prior to that, the Covenanting movement would consist of people who had a range of opinions on Episcopacy. And then you see this at the Glasgow Assembly, Alex Campbell's work has shown this really well, with the most notable person who enters dissent about um, considering Episcopacy illegal, which is Robert Bailey, Glasgow, um, or Irvine rather. Um, But there are a whole group of other people, especially from Angus and the Merz who are at the Glasgow Assembly and clearly have scruples about um, saying no to episcopacy. Now, of course, keep in mind that a lot of these guys were had taken an episcopal oath earlier in their career. They'd been <laughs> they'd been ordained by bishops, but also there are others who saw bishops as totally consistent with with the church. And so this this is all based upon a reading of Scottish Protestant history from the previous you know hundred years or so that suggested that you know maybe bishops were okay maybe you know what did Knox mean when he put superintendents in the church were they bishops and what you end up with in the Glasgow Assembly is a really kind of choreographed argument about reading Scottish church history in a certain way to try to emphasize the fact that you know maybe bishops don't belong in it And the the choreographed nature of what happens at the Glasgow Assembly with all these outbursts of emotion with people swearing the covenant, swearing allegiance to the cause, kind of galvanizes that quite extreme and and radical agenda within the the Assembly, but it also pushes into the background some of those dissenting voices. In fact, when Hamilton Hamilton, the, the um, the, the King's Commissioner at the Assembly walks out, a number of those ministers go with him. Mm. And this is, and people regularly kind of skirt over that. So there's clearly concern within the church about to what extent can they reconcile Episcopacy in the Scottish church. And then there are others who, even though you, you might not refer to them as royalists, have issues with perhaps defying the king in a stronger way as they have done. And there are a lot of issues there. So at the strongest end of the spectrum, you have ministers saying, that perhaps covenanting is a traitorous act, but there are others who just decide that they don't want to talk about it. And so they get a reader in their church or an assistant or a, a psalm sinker or someone, they just get somebody else to say the words for them. And this is kind of like this wiggle room for, well, how can I keep my job while kind of going with the wind is a, is a pretty common thing. And as the 1640s progresses and then into the 1650s, what you get is these moments where the church leaders decide that they're going to set traps It's culminated in 1648, where the, the church leadership in the, in the commission, of the general assembly decides that they're actually going to start punishing ministers who remain silent or ambiguous in their preaching <laughs> about <laughs> these, about these political events. And so there's this tradition in Scottish preaching since, since Knox in the 16th century, where. Scottish ministers will talk openly about politics. Now in Geneva, that doesn't happen. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you get fished out really quickly in Geneva. If you talk about politics and the covenant thing sort of pushes that in a direction where the authorities start to almost attempt to force a uniformity in political thought out of the pulpit. And of course that's all when I'm going on paper, but when it comes to, you know, actually preaching it out loud, discussing it with your parishioners, the edges are a little bit rougher than maybe the legislation suggests. So, yeah, the the divisions within the ministry are royalist, covenanter, fine, but also within those, co- those guys who signed the covenant, and also the guys who were really enthusiastic about it, there's disagreement about what that means, what it means to be a covenanter and what it means to be a good minister. And that permeates their day-to-day
0: behaviour in all sorts of ways. That's really interesting. With the General Assembly in in 1638, the reputation of it as sort of a a unanimous thing with the disagreements brushed over, is that the case with the later assemblies in 1639 and 40 and 41? Were these just as deceptively unanimous or was there actual unanimity at this point?
2: Yeah, it's a a great question. The, The 39 assemblies I, I would argue, and we, we've said privately before, that it's a, a, an underrated assembly, I would suggest. And so 38, the, the Glasgow Assembly gets a lot of attention, and, and I'm guilty of that as, as, as much as anybody as sort of promulgating some of that attention. But it becomes, 1638 becomes this hagiographical moment for the Scottish Church, with Future historians, in particular in the, in the 1800s, talking about this kind of tradition of covenanting in Scotland, and it was it was ever thus and, and that sort of thing. Whereas we've obviously discussed that that lack of of unanimity in, in areas in 1638, but it's it's really 1639 when you get, well, clearly the, the the king and the covenanters are are staring at each other out and playing chicken with each other but it's, it's really 1639 when you have the ratification of all of the acts that were, quote, passed at the Glasgow Assembly. And so the selection of, of the King's commissioner in John Stuart, Earl of Tricare is telling really in that that's obviously the Royal Commissioner, but Tricare's relationship with, with the King and with the Covenanters is, is, is an interesting one. And the fact that Tricare sort of signs away and um, um, he signs off on these acts, he signs away the king's right to do certain things, much to the king's disappointment, I would suggest, is is a telling one. And it's this moment when, and I think Drakir sees the way the, the wind is, is blowing, this is the, the moment when the Covenanters take control. And indeed, actually, what you start to see with depositions of ministers, so those ministers being removed from their posts, because of political crimes or perceived political crimes, the majority of them aren't aren't removed in 1638 they're removed in 1639 and they're removed in 1639 because effectively what happens is the the Glasgow Declaration abolishing Episcopacy is promulgated properly in Scotland at the start of 1639 it gets out quickly and then you start to get so okay so we you have all of the orders with bishops being removed but you also get presbyteries taking it into their own hands to start judging ministers around them and some of these guys were not at least publicly or rather in the records that we have in the crosshairs in 1638 so they had a little bit of a chance to see people's reactions to the covenant in 1638 in the early part of 1639 and then in between the promulgation of the glasgow declaration Um, and the um, 1639 General Assembly in August in Edinburgh, you get this moment where there's this kind of action taking place within presbyteries in Scotland. And effectively what the August 1639 General Assembly does is it serves to rubber stamp what's happened in those presbyteries and, and and then start taking it further. So effectively what the 1639 Assembly does is it draws a line in the sand and says, that's what uniformity is and this is how you're going to judge it. And so it's a a really big moment for for the Church of Scotland. And what you then get, and that this is incredibly telling, is that when the 1640 assembly happens, which is right at the height of the crisis in the Second Bishop's War, you know, you don't have many of the leading figures there because they're with the army uh, on the border but you have this moment where there's no Royal commissioner. So in 1638, you've got James Hamilton of Hamilton in 1639, you've got Stuart of Tracaire. And then in 1640, the King doesn't appoint anyone. And this is a really important moment because it suggests for the first time that of course the Covenanters can act with, with, without the King's commissioner there. So even when they were acting without James Hamilton present in Glasgow at the end of 1639, they did it with the sort of tacit understanding that yes, they look, o- they oversee the church, but also that, well, he'd opened the meeting and he left kind of in error. <laughs> Whereas in 1640, <laughs> nobody turns up, nobody rocks up and they just crack on. And so that's a, 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 a really important moment where almost you know, 1641, 1642, 1643 assemblies all have a Royal Commissioner and then in 1644, there isn't one. So these moments when there's no Royal Commissioner is actually making quite an important statement about how the church at least officially saw itself and how it kind of perceived itself in relation to Royal authority. So, And I would argue that, that 1639 is, is a really important threshold that we as historians probably don't promote enough I would suggest. It's really interesting. It's really unusual, Sam, because the General Assembly is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a specialist subject. But yeah, yeah I mean, it, it is something that I think has a, a, a wider resonance with understanding 17th century politics and within a kind of British and Irish context, because, of course, all of those meetings of, of leading clerics, whether it's, you know, um, Mm. the sort of meeting of bishops uh, convocation in England whether it's the various meetings that take place in the church of Ireland that, that historians have written about previously they all say something about the church's respective relationships with with the monarch and because Charles pushes you know this quite 1637 1638 has pushed this idea of a, of a English style Quasar royal supremacy on the Scottish church. The fact that the 1639 assembly and then the 1640 assembly obviously without a commissioner sort of sidesteps that supremacy issue. The really wonderful thing is they never really talk about it. They never straight up talk about royal supremacy in Scotland and the fact that what they're doing is kind of against that. But the assembly's actions offer those words to us, if you like. The, the, the Assembly's actions are the text that we have to use to show that they're sending out a message about royal supremacy here.
0: With the Assembly in 1640, did Charles plan to send someone? Or was it always assumed by the by Kirk that, well, we're, we'll be at war then, so <laughs> what what happens then? I, I'm, right. I'm really curious about the, the background of this. The logistics of the 1640? the assembly are, are
2: superbly interesting. So it takes place at the end of July and the start of August, 1640. It is never meant to take place then. <laughs> so they kind of, fa- um, you know, there's so many arrangements going on that they, I mean, the, the timing of it is is just superb. And I always have to remind myself of this. Um, so if you think about the timing of, of the 1640 assembly, it's the shortest assembly, of the decade and i don't know if that's if that's something to shout about or not but it is telling because the assemblies tend to take a month to talk about things now and these are huge logistical events you know like they complain in glasgow in 1638 that there aren't enough hotels you know there aren't enough inns and taverns for for the minister to hang out in they have to i mean if you imagine Um, um, a representative from every Presbytery of Scotland and oftentimes I mean sometimes they send three they just send sort of backups you know it's like Victorian football there's just guys running behind each other you know just in case he gets ill or you know I've got a private advisor coming with me or something and then you've got the lay commissioners as well these are huge events so they, they can actually bring quite a lot of money in for an area but you need to be in a in a borough that can absorb that so these always take place in, in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, St Andrews, you know, they, they're not taking place in Dunbar, you know, what I mean? <laughs> and that's no disrespect to, to Dunbar, but they're also not taking place in somewhere like Perth. So there are messages there, but in terms of the logistics of 1640, you get a, a, a new moderator who is hugely experienced as a minister, um, but he... He doesn't take uh, uh, the status of moderator again, uh, because a lot of the leading ministers, a lot of the, what I might argue to be the leadership of the Kirk at that point, they, they were not in um, Aberdeen in 1640. The meeting really, I mean, they they ship it up to Aberdeen so it's away from any risk. from so it's away from the border effectively, um, in case it's shut down or something. And then in terms of the Royal Commissioner, because the meeting is moved um charles doesn't appoint one i mean and they are at war at that point i mean they they are on a war footing from from the um from the summer effectively so there there is no um indication of that and and in charles's judgement not sending a royal commissioner is is a is a strong message mm. that this isn't approved this is not under the umbrella of royal supremacy so by charles not Sending a royal commissioner, he's he's sending a a strong message relating to his position and his lack of sanction on that assembly. And you know for for Charles, that sort of that that sort of symbolic action was was quite important. And I think sometimes this, he doesn't get the credit for this. he he deserves, despite so much mismanagement in other areas. One of Charles's traits in his his political exchanges as, as Richard Custer's shown in his biography of Charles I, is that, Charles, he loves a little bit of divide and rule. And when he's at Glasgow, he's trying divide and rule at the Glasgow Assembly, he, he tells Hamilton that. And I think what he's trying to do in 1640, I mean, he, this this isn't a very well thought out plan, but by not sending a Royal Commissioner, there is this opportunity that he can flush out people who don't like the fact that they're holding an Assembly without a Royal Commissioner. So he he does this all the time with things where he's trying to and force those people who are kind of wavering or moderate. He always tries to go for the moderate middle and to try to, to force them into a decision. Now, of course, at the same time that's happening, the church leadership is presenting questions for ministers and and congregants in Scotland that are pushing them more in the extreme direction. So what you end up with is these crossroads where people are forced to make a choice and those choices become more murky the further in time they move. Now, but for the 1640 assembly, um, I mean, it lasts for about a week, you know? And keeping in mind, like, the opening prayer, the closing prayer, the prayer at the start of the day, the prayer at the end of the day, I mean, they don't get a lot done, 1640. um, And um, ultimately, I mean, the thing that I'm most interested in, in in 1640 is that they actually rubber stamp at the Aberdeen Assembly how future assemblies should behave. Um, so I think that it's an, it's an important assembly in terms of the logistics of how people were meant to behave at, at future assemblies, but in terms of flushing out political opponents, um, drawing lines in the sand about political opinions, it's 1639 um, where they they really lay the groundwork for that. Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life.
0: No purchase necessary. DTW report, prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus.
2: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th.
1: Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood, characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories. Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
0: In the second half of 1641, Charles visits Scotland, and uh, it's an eventful visit, but How was he received by the Kirk during this visit? This is the first time he's been in Scotland since the early 1630s, and that went about as well as you might have expected. So I'm curious, like, did he get welcomed with open arms? Did this question of the royal supremacy come up again, or was it again quietly sidestepped?
2: Yeah, so this is an opportunity for the Covenanters and the Covenantian leadership to prove their credentials, their loyal credentials, their bona fides, so there, I mean, there are there are rumors that there are some extreme individuals within the movement um, who are going in really radical directions, um, who who would be who would consider this a problem, would consider his visit a problem. But you know, they are very much a minority. And you can tell that they're a minority because their views are not uttered in record books. So actually what you end up with is, at least in, in, this, in this part of the 1640, you know, any kind of reflection on Charles, including during his visit here, all, they all emphasise loyalty. They all emphasise the fact that, you know, um, the church um, is totally loyal to him, that the individuals within the church are preaching against him. And, and his visit, almost perversely, offers the covenanters an opportunity especially some of the the leading covenanters it offers them this this window of opportunity to show that they are not seditious to show that actually um, they're the moderates you know and uh, and so any kind of dissenting voices from that any of the, the, the real hotheads will get into trouble for that No, and and this sort of thing isn't expressed so this sort of links to to some of the stuff that i I'm interested in, in, in how, people, how ministers behaved in assemblies, in that the Covenanters were obsessed with appearing moderate. And we think about them now through the lens of Cameronians, the killing times and things like that in the later part of the 17th century. These real zealots, you know, dying for their faith. But in this part of the 1640s, they are absolutely desperate to show themselves as the moderate uh, group and in fact they don't want to appear as a faction they just want to appear to be the voices of moderation in a world that has gone badly out of skew and so and this manifests itself in how they view their history so this is the period where they're reading John Knox and his history of the reformation in Scotland and they are um, trying to reconcile who on earth Knox is for them and and this is almost like our contemporary interest in, in, in statues today in trying to reconcile what what those potent symbols mean to the modern era and so you've got you've got leading covenanters in the 1640s talking about John Knox and emphasizing the legality of his protest for example um, and there's, there's one example where you know, they really then struggle when Knox talks about potentially overthrowing monarchs, you know, like that old thing. So what you end up with is there, there's, there's a really, almost outrageous exchange in print where you have an author saying or suggesting that all of those comments Knox made about, um, uh, about removing monarchs, removing magistrates who aren't reformers Maybe Knox didn't even write that stuff. <laughs> so, up, so what you end up with is, in in the case of Knox, they come up with at least four different versions of John Knox, because they they are trying to emphasise, look, this we're related to this guy, we're part of his lineage. Keep in mind as well that you have ministers still, um, you have ministers active in the sixteen forties who trace their lineage, their blood back to Knox. You know. There are people called John Knox in Midlothian who are related to John Knox, you know. Um, you have his um you have his relatives across um, sort of South the Forth, effectively, whether that's in Ayrshire or whether that's in East Lothian. And so they have to reconcile where they fit with this, with this lineage of, of descent, effectively. And that's kind of a microcosm of this this bigger issue. You know, they want to be moderate they don't I mean we often say this in kind of political thought that the real radicals don't see themselves as radicals they see themselves as as, as um, reinstating or restoring the status quo that's what they do now we, that's really difficult for us to to swallow now especially when um, you know how can these people considering themselves moderates fall down in tears in a general assembly meeting but that part of their kind of protestant worldview, their 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 theological kind of views on emotion feed directly into this idea that, that that's absolutely a legitimate way to to uh, encourage moderation. You know, crying and getting down on your knees and referring to your eyes as melting when you're crying is a perfectly okay thing to do if it's in the search of moderation. So what you have in, in, in 1641 is an absolutely edged opportunity for the Covenanters to show that they are the, the moderates um, that they have been saying they are. And just one last thing on this, keep in mind that William Lord, when describing the 1638 General Assembly in Glasgow, referred to Alexander Henderson as the moderator without moderation, trying to kind of paint him as this zealot. So in 1641, this is the opportunity to say, hey, Put a human face to the Covenanting an movement, and to em- emphasise and underscore this idea that they're the moderates here, and it's people like Lord who are the zealots who have taken the king and um, a of
0: shape, if you like.
2: So, yeah, it's a big opportunity, and you don't hear much dissent from that
0: Did this idea of moderation and this this belief that they were moderate? How long did that survive? Did it ever? Die was it constantly a part of the the covenanting movement?
2: Well, I can I can speak for the the middle of the century. I mean, there's hmm. uh, there's clearly some who you might say kind of revel in that radicalism and who who see themselves as outside the the establishment. But even within that 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 idea that covenanting generally, if you go back to the text, even though there's various ways of reading that text. The, the kernel of it is a, is about restoring the purity, restore and, and, and protecting a truth that the Scottish Church has within it somewhere, and that it just needs to be polished up. Now the extent to which you're polishing up, <laughs> the, the the shape of your polishing up, that's the bit that's open to, to to interpretation. But in the 1640s, um the idea of moderation remains. And so what you have with the solemn legal covenant for example in the middle of the 1640s is that a number of people who were very very happy and eager and subscribers to the national covenant in 38 39 they see the subscription of the solemn League and covenant as a bit too radical and they think that this is not the moderate course they want and one of the reasons for this is that they you know they they're not seeing this as a what's it sometimes called as a, a marriage of convenience or a pragmatic relationship you know there are some ministers in the church who don't give a monkeys about that there are there are some ministers in the Scottish church who think that aligning with the independence in England the schismatics as they're calling them is a deeply problematic act that is too radical and so those guys start to be removed from the church effectively and then and then again in the later 1640s, when there's a an agreement with with sort of pseudo royalists in Scotland in the engagement, Christmas 1647 into 1648, again it forces this moment of reckoning of well how are we meant to band up with these royalists when you know we've been fighting them? Or how am I not meant to band together with them when they're my brothers? So there's this huge kind of just in for position but in all of that I think the question of moderation is is a really interesting kind of lens through which you can look at this because what you have here is people making these decisions especially ministers who are trying to thread a needle and and that needle obviously moves for each individual but that that needle is bounded oftentimes by the idea of moderation because they are terrified of being the radical. And in Scotland in particular, Scott Spurlock has shown this really, really well recently in his work, the Scottish church was broadly obsessed with the idea of a national church. The idea of of schism, the idea of a a separate rival church emerging scares people deeply in Scotland. Um, So what you end up with is even in the 1650s when the church hemorrhages, you get the guys who split away from the church saying well but we haven't really split you know we're just we're just trying to fix it and they are at pains to suggest that they are not separatists because all of their reading of biblical history all of their reading of um, anabaptism in 16th century um, continental europe all suggest to them that separatism is a bad thing Sorry, to, to use the 1066 and all that. So <laughs> separatism is a bad thing, capital B, capital T. So the Scottish church is very interested in that idea of, of one national church. There is a, a, a church in Scotland. Um, and this idea of moderation really plays into that, that you don't want to be a separatist. It's not just about, it's not just putting lipstick on a pig, it's not suggesting that, oh, this is all for, this is window dressing, this is for show. It's actually that you know, they genuinely believe that separatism is a problem and therefore the way to prevent that separatism is through moderation and restraint. And this comes to a head in, in 1648 when the, the, the church has a serious split over this and the commission of the general assembly tries to frame its opposition to the engagement in 1647-48 as a way of um, navigating perilous waters with rocks on either side that is the phrasing that they usually come out with because they know they're trying to thread this needle and they know it's difficult and sometimes I think by the time you get to the late 1640s some of them are starting to realize what an outrageous way of behaving this is (laughs) that you have to keep shifting your kind of moral compass and they it starts to become a problem when you have to make a public declaration of that because they know that they're going to have parishioners point at them from from the stalls or the pews saying, well, two years ago you said this. You know, and so this emphasis on on moderation does continue, but it's squeezed in ways that make people very, very uncomfortable.
0: So just to finish off and keeping in mind our recent focus on the idea of remaining a moderate in your view was there a scottish revolution <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're gonna need a bigger boat uh, yeah yeah i think there was I, I i always come back to a conversation that i had as an undergraduate um where i and maybe people who know me have heard this story loads of times i'm re- really sorry if they're listening but i remember a conversation as undergraduate i had with with my supervisor and then um, i was trying to be contrary and explain why there wasn't a, a revolution in england in the middle of the 17th century and he turned around to me and he said they cut the guy's head off and that was sort of it now, <laughs> that's the of the conversation. now in a scottish context obviously they don't subscribe to, uh, a warrant um to to execute the king there are these kind of these emphases on, on loyalty but you know, revolutions are, are described by people after the event. And um, we have different criteria from those at the time. And while I'm not suggesting that those em- those emphases on, on moderation were feigned, they weren't, they, they clearly believed them, they believed what they were doing. I think this constant asking of questions about well, where do you stand now? Where do you stand on this changing issue? What you have is this this hill that they all start going down, this snowball effect, and the more and more they're asked about, well, what, what's your stance on it? You know, declare where you are now, tell everyone, swear on this. You know, all these quite traditional acts, you know, declarations, proclamations, and and I know that have, have much longer histories in, 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 in Scotland uh, in particular. But every time they ask one of those questions, you know, the temperature goes up a little bit. And ultimately by the time, despite what happens in the 1660s where, you know, there are revocations and um, acts of oblivion um, on what's happened between 1638 and 1660, as as Alan Kennedy in the the International Covenant volume that I edited suggests, that restoration state not only has to deal with the memory, of those years but it also absorbs some of the things um, that it's facing and it absorbs some of the almost learnings of that so the desire to turn back time if you like I mean that might be one desire in in, in, in some in some cases but what you actually have in 1660 is a very different situation than you have in 1638 where they, they don't forget this and often historians talk about forgetting as um, you know well, how could people forget it would be impossible because so many people died and and that's absolutely one way to look at it but in terms of people being made to declare their political allegiances very publicly in this period is something that they don't turn the clock back on and in these kind of like um, this squaring up to the state the squaring up to political authority that doesn't change either so what, what you've got here is, I've argued this before, there's a deep continuity in some of the practices in terms of religion that go on. People use those as a, as a form of kind of comfort, I suppose, and a touchstone parochial discipline doesn't change that much um, across this period. But overall, I mean, yeah, the, the changes that, that accumulate over this, this 22 year period are revolutionary. Um, now, we can pick up the weed, go into the weeds on, on what that means, on what the word revolution means, but I mean, this is this is 22 years of turbocharging political thought that they cannot take back. And I would argue, as, as Alan Kennedy does, uh, probably better than, than I would, that they, in some cases, they don't want to turn back everything. They don't want to turn back um, all of those changes. And one might argue that they know they can't. The early modern state knows its limitations. And so what you end up with in 1660 is you know, a period where they are still living with the consequences of what's happened for those previous 22 years. So in short, yes, this is a revolution.
0: What a brilliant answer to end on. Thank you so much for coming on, Chris. This has been super, super interesting. Thanks for inviting me, Sam. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased you found it interesting, even the bit about assemblies. <laughs> No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome?
1: What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient
0: forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective.
1: Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.